What if I told you that there were more Civil War stories having to do with Williamsburg than stories of George Washington in Williamsburg? That's right. Today on the Untold Civil War podcast, we are forever rebranding Colonial Williamsburg. From this day forth, Williamsburg will be known as Civil War Williamsburg. But don't just take my word for it. Hear the evidence yourself. So put on your traps, come to shoulder arms, and let's march into some untold civil war. I'm here with Carson Hudson, who is a renowned writer and historian who has written on several topics, including the civil war, pirates, and witchcraft. Of particular interest for this episode are the books Hidden History of Civil War Williamsburg, Yankees in the Streets, and Civil War Williamsburg. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Now, when I think of Williamsburg, I don't necessarily think of the Civil War. I think most people think of colonial Williamsburg, but the Civil War does come to Williamsburg. And for those involved, this is no small matter. Can you tell us how the Civil War comes to Williamsburg and why? Sure. <clears throat> well, it comes in a, in a roundabout way. The people in Williamsburg that were here, uh, 1860, 1861, were basically uh, not exactly fervent secessionists, but after the firing on Fort Sumter, they turned into fervent secessionists, as did the state of Virginia and seceded. Uh, Williamsburg became a mustering point for Confederate forces in the eastern Virginia Tidewater region. Troops were coming from the south to protect the new uh, Confederate capital at Richmond, a lot of them were going on up and were going to become involved in Northern Virginia uh, at the Battle of Manassas, of course. But there was a sizable contingent here on the peninsula that was looking uh, towards uh, a possible federal invasion from the east. Confederate forces were in the area around Williamsburg. It was a tent city for uh, about a year. And then the war actually arrived at Williamsburg with the beginning of uh, McClellan's Peninsula Campaign. McClellan uh, landed uh, 121,000 United States soldiers down at Fort Monroe with the intention of sliding through uh, the peninsula up into Richmond's back door, bypassing the forces in Manassas. He didn't quite succeed because uh, Johnston, General Johnston in Northern Virginia, had, by the time McClellan started to move, Johnston had moved his forces down to block McClellan. And so you have the beginning of the peninsula campaign and then you have, after the Peninsula Campaign, the Seven Days fight around Richmond. But Williamsburg becomes involved during the early Peninsula Campaign as McClellan is advancing from Yorktown, Virginia, towards Richmond. It basically, the battle starts because the Confederate Army is moving too slow through the mud. It was raining the entire month of April and into May of 1862. So uh, as Johnson is trying to pull out of Yorktown, uh, without engaging uh, McClellan. Johnston didn't want to fight here on the Virginia Peninsula. And uh, as they're trying to retreat through Williamsburg, uh, McClellan occupies Yorktown and he sends cavalry uh, to the west, which makes contact with the Confederates as they are in Williamsburg. And the battle starts on the 5th of May, 1862, Cinco de Mayo. And you've mentioned names that I think most people would know from earlier wars, such as Yorktown. Did these soldiers know that they were marching on previous battlefields, or did they n take note of that? Yeah, yes. The, the Union Army um, occupying the area here, uh, first of all, they, they came from uh, Hampton, Fort Monroe and Hampton, laid siege to Yorktown. 
on the York River. They were very familiar, but that was where General Washington had defeated General Cornwallis uh, 80-some years before. And uh, they mention it, yes, they mention it, they talk about it. Um, there's a Virginia monument that was there to the uh, victory in 1781, which disappeared because of souvenir hunters. So they were very aware of what was going on and the significance. McClellan was also influenced that that's why he wanted to lay siege rather than, than a direct attack. He, he wanted to lay siege to Yorktown to kind of duplicate what Washington had done with the British. When that fell through, of course, they're proceeding on towards Williamsburg. And when they get to Williamsburg, they recognize here in Williamsburg that it is a colonial town, an antique town, and there were 88 buildings or more standing from the Revolutionary War just 80 years before. So, uh, you know, you have many Union accounts, people who are in the town or passing through the town talking about the ancient patriots who were here at the Bruton Parish Church at the uh, Powder Magazine who walked these streets and saw the taverns and the, the houses and stuff like that, the College of William and Mary. They all, they all comment on it, yes. Well, what happens on uh, Cinco de Mayo there? Well, on Cinco de Mayo, um, you have the beginning of the battle. General Johnston, uh, Joseph Johnston, was retreating with his army through uh, Williamsburg. There's, uh, in 1862, there was only one road to get to Richmond, and that road ran through Williamsburg. It was the main street of Williamsburg. So Williamsburg was a, was a very important place as a, as a kind of bottleneck. Uh, the Confederates had constructed uh, a line of forts to the east of the town early in 1861 uh, and uh, into 1862, uh, which they had abandoned because they didn't plan on having a battle there. But when uh, McClellan's army catches up with Johnson's army uh, the night of the 4th of May, 1862, uh, General Johnston hastily redeploys his army. He, he tells General Longstreet, one of his division commanders, James Longstreet, to take about a third of the army, his division, and turn around and uh, occupy these forts that had been left to the east of Williamsburg and delay the Union advance. Johnson was hoping for about 24 hours to get his army clear of Williamsburg and on the road to Richmond. Well, uh, the night of the 4th of May and into the 5th of May, Confederate soldiers were occupying the forts. Union soldiers were coming forward. The Union soldiers coming forward knew that the Confederates were in front of them, but didn't know what was in front of them. The Confederates occupying the forts knew that the Union Army was coming up the road fast, but didn't know what was coming up the road fast. And it started uh, raining in the night of the 4th of May, a heavy, heavy rain, cloud covered. And uh, the, the dawning, if you want to call it the dawning of the day, was a rain, rainy day, uh, dark and rainy. Uh, the battle starts about 7 o'clock in the morning as General Hooker uh, and his, uh, and his uh, troops start coming up towards the Williamsburg defenses. They see these forts, and Hooker just jumps right on in and pushes his army forward towards the, his troops forward towards the forts. The battle itself developed throughout the day with uh, the Union Army trying to probe forward, the Confederate Army defending various positions and probing forward themselves. Uh, there was a, a, a cleared out area in front of the forts, uh, quite a bit, almost a mile cleared out area where the Confederates had cut trees down to prevent troops from coming across the fields. Uh, they were providing uh, obstacles. With the dark clouds and the, the uh, rain coming down, visibility was limited. 
the Union attack on the Confederate lines was not really coordinated. The battle broke down during the day to basically three different battles in three different areas of the Williamsburg battlefield. The Union Army was not communicating with each other, even though um, Hooker was fighting uh, on the left. He has uh, Smith, General Smith fighting uh, in the center, General Hancock fighting on the right, and none of these troops are, are communicating with each other. There's no coordinated effort. The Confederates have a problem, and the Union was suffering from the same problem, that there were no good maps of the area. And if you were from, say, Louisiana or Mississippi or Alabama, you knew this area about as well as the troops from New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, whatever. And so with that being in mind, even though the Confederates had constructed these forts to the east of Winsburg, Longstreet didn't know where they were. <laughs> and um, with that being said, he didn't occupy all of the forts. There were 12, 13 forts in a, in a line across the peninsula. He didn't occupy them all. There was a lot of fumbling in the battle, uh, a lot of slipping and sliding in the mud. It was a very interesting battle, vicious at times. Many people said afterwards it was one of the harder fought battles they'd ever participated in, especially because of the rain. At the end of the day, neither side had really progressed forward one way or the other. The Confederates occupied their lines. The Union troops had not made any headway. And the battle kind of uh, petered out as the darkness uh, came on on the 5th of May, 1862. With the darkness, the Confederates under Longstreet uh, his division, he pulls his division out and, and trots down the road in the mud trying to catch up with Johnson. He's done what he was told to do. McClellan doesn't arrive on the battlefield until about five o'clock. He was in Yorktown uh, with administrative duties, he said. Uh, and he arrives on the battlefield about five o'clock as the battle is about ending, but he declares that he has come to save the day. But he doesn't really know what he's saved because uh, it's getting dark and the Union troops basically lay on their arms on the battlefield until the next morning when the sun comes up. They advance forward cautiously, find Williamsburg full of wounded soldiers, and the Confederate Army is gone. And the Union Army occupies Williamsburg. So I understand it at Williamsburg, there was the first use of machine guns. Is that correct? Uh, well, it's not the first use, but it, it was a major use uh, of the um, agar repeating gun, A-G-A-R, -A agar gun, it was called. It was also called the coffee mill gun. The official name, I think, for it was the union repeating gun or something like that manufactured and demonstrated uh, in 1861 to President Lincoln. He was so impressed with it that he uh, ordered the War Department to buy 10 of them right there. For the Peninsula Campaign, 1862, McClellan had some with him uh, with the Excelsior Brigade. The Army eventually bought 50 of them, I believe, at about $1,300 a piece. When the war was over, they sold them for $500 a piece. They weren't really used in action a lot because of a lot of problems that they had, uh, but Williamsburg was a place where they actually did use them on the battlefield. The 5th of May, 1862, the Excelsior Brigade, New York troops, had come onto the field at Williamsburg, uh, and they were on the uh, east side of a little uh, ravine called the Bloody Ravine. The Confederates uh, were coming from the west side of the ravine, uh, trying to drive the federal troops from the field. Hooker's troops had, had fallen back and had been replaced by the New Yorkers. Uh, they had with them, uh, as far as I'm aware, two of these agar repeating guns. 
It was also called the coffee mill gun, if I did not mention that before, because it had a, a hopper on the top in which you would put the uh, cartridges in. They were 58 caliber paper cartridges, which were placed in a metal tube with a percussion cap on the end. So you basically had a, a modern cartridge almost. Then as they, as they were fired, the metal cartridges had to be collected and re reloaded with the 58 caliber cartridge and new percussion caps put on them. They would fire about, I think the rate was 120 rounds a minute uh, if you had no problems with it. It was a cranked operated weapon. And anyway, uh, the New York troops had two of these on the field. We don't know anything about their specific action, whether they worked well or whether they didn't work well on the field that day. Uh, we do know that the Confederates, as they were coming forward from the west of the Bloody Ravine at Williamsburg, uh, they crossed the ravine, they overran the uh, Excelsior unit and the two machine guns, the two agar guns. The Union troops, New Yorkers, retreated, and as they retreated, they left their agar guns on the field, but they had unscrewed the barrels and uh, taken them with them. When the Confederates captured these guns, again, we don't have any evidence, but I, I honestly don't think the Confederates even realized what they had. There's no mention of them in Confederate records. The Confederates swept on going to the east and driving the New Yorkers back. A little bit later in the day, the New Yorkers and other troops came forward, uh, other federal troops came forward and retook the ravine again uh, and recaptured the agar guns intact. Again, the Confederates had not tried to get them on off the field because, again, I don't think they even knew what they had. So right. uh, the guns were returned to federal possession, and uh, they were carried on up the peninsula towards Richmond. And that's the use of the agar gun at Williamsburg, where the Union repeating rifle, not, not very distinguished, but uh, <laughs> it was here. Right. And uh, you sort of mentioned there was no one really wrote about ever firing them or facing them or the impact they had, right, That's that we know of. Well, uh, they were used during the guy, uh, during the war. They were used uh, to protect bridges and outposts and things like that. I believe uh, I remember something about the Confederates actually had either captured them or, or, or ripped off the idea. And the Confederates had a couple of them at Petersburg. I know that General Butler down at Fort Monroe had ordered a couple. Again, General McClellan had them. But again, they, they don't make any big impact on the war one way or the other. They were used. People, people were firing them somewhere in the war. But uh, as far as anybody writing about, oh, my God, there's an agar gun across the field. No, nobody right. ever did that. <laughs> right, right. Do we know where these actual agars went? Were they you know, scrapped at the end of the war there's or? At the end of the war, they were sold for scrap metal. I, I have no idea who bought them. I believe that there are a couple in existence now. One of them is, I, I, I do know, one of them is on exhibit at the Springfield Armory. There are photographs, both the Civil War photographs and modern photographs, and, and people have actually built reproductions of them. Some of the reenactors have built reproductions of them to just show how it worked. So you can go on YouTube, uh, put in agar repeating rifle or agar union coffee mill gun and you can probably see somebody shooting one that is something that is very different you don't hear about that at any battlefield i mean certainly you don't hear about it at you know gettysburg or some of these bigger names and yet here you have it at williamsburg and yet williamsburg is you know stuck in untold civil war realm which is that's right a, a shame for you know history in general but great for my podcast because that just gives me more stories to talk about yeah, and I, I've heard a story somewhere back again in the recesses of my mind. 
I do I do remember that uh, the man in charge of ordnance for the federal army did not want repeating uh, rifles such as the Henry rifle and all of that uh, because they would fire up too much ammunition and the troops would use too many too many rounds which would cost too much money which right. you know typical government but I, I've heard that story about the agar gun too is that the, the you know Lincoln liked it but apparently the War Department didn't because they were afraid it was going to cost too much money to, to keep these things in operation but knowing you know having fired black powder weapons they foul quite easily uh, I know that the um, sharps carbine would foul and the, the regular rifled muskets that the troops were using would foul if you use them a lot so firing 120 rounds from a single-barreled gun a minute, I'm sure that they were having some fouling problems. I, you know, uh, the technical specifications you could fire 120 20 rounds per minute, but you know, could you actually keep that up for a minute or more? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, I wonder how the ordnance commander during the Civil War would feel about the ammo used today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I remember from my own times in the military, I, you know, we shot up a million dollars worth of ammo, right. <laughs> you know, because when when the stuff hits the fan, you know, you don't care yeah. <laughs> what the ordinance guy thinks. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I know you're probably thinking that this is an awesome interview and that you wish you had the same access that I do to these experts so that you could ask your own questions. Well, now you can by signing up for a monthly subscription via the Patreon link in the show notes, tiers two, three, and four will get advanced notice of all my interviews and will be able to submit questions beforehand. Don't miss out on our next expert. I know you've sat there and you've reread that paragraph in that book over and over again, trying to understand it. Now you have the opportunity to ask the very author what he meant. Plus, your monthly subscription will go to support the show and allow me to bring bigger and better episodes to you. It seems to me Longstreet was pretty effective in buying time, though. He was. He was. I mean, he did what uh, both sides, both sides, if you read the newspapers and letters of the soldiers, uh, especially on the Confederate side, uh, but both sides feel that they won the battle. Longstreet was supposed to hold up the Union Army. He wasn't supposed to beat McClellan back. He, he was just supposed to hold McClellan. And he did. And McClellan, uh, his, his troops coming forward without any direct orders, their, their immediate objective was to take the Confederate forts, which they didn't do. But the Confederates left the field the next day. They occupied the forts right. unopposed and then occupied the town. And that was the next step on the road to Richmond. Right. The battle itself is relatively unknown today because of, as you mentioned at the very beginning, the Revolutionary War. In the 1920s, Colonial Williamsburg Foundation uh, was formed to preserve the city of Williamsburg as it had looked in the 18th century. And then you have Yorktown on one side, which is a Revolutionary War battlefield, National Park Service, and Jamestown on the other side, on the James River uh, National Park Service. Uh, with all that, you, you have this area inundated with colonial history and colonial, colonial stories and things like that. And the Civil War just kind of faded into the background uh, as the 20th century came about and the, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation began to restore the town. At the time, the battle was fairly important for a number of reasons. It was the largest battle in the East after the Battle of Manassas, which had happened the year before. There had been uh, Union movement in the 
west, Forts Henry and Fort Donelson had been captured. There had been the Battle of Shiloh, which had horrified everybody. Uh, and so in the east, this is the big major thing that starts in 1862 uh, with the Battle of Williamsburg. What it was, though, um, and I try to impress upon this to, to, to students and to people that I speak with, the Battle of Williamsburg was a very uncoordinated affair, but it was a training ground, a basic training or boot camp, if you will, for a lot of the soldiers on both sides. Believe it or not, May of 1862, most of the soldiers in the Battle of Williamsburg had never been in a battle before. There was one Union regiment that I was trying to remember the number of, uh, had never even fired their guns before. Uh, and they're thrown into this battle. And what they're learning, slipping and sliding in the mud, their commanders, such as Longstreet, who has never commanded before the Civil War, he's never commanded more than 100 men or something like that. Now he's a division commander. Uh, Longstreet, A.P. Hill, uh, Jubal Early, Pickett, Stewart, they are all learning their craft of coordinating units on the battlefield and coordinating with each other. And the same thing on the Union side with General Hancock, General Hooker, General Kearney. They are, they are learning their craft on a big scale. And then for the, for the average soldier, he's just learning his craft. He's learning how to stand up and fire under fire uh, and how to attack and retreat when need be. And they, both sides attack, both sides retreat. The fire is heavy on both sides. So it's, it's, a, it's a basic training, as I said, for both armies. And uh, even though they're, they're kind of amateurish here in May of 1862, a year later, these two armies, the same armies, are going to be really uh, at, say, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, are going to be some of the best armies in the world. They're going to know what they are doing. And uh, again, it shows at Gettysburg, they, they fight tooth and nail these are the same troops that had fought at, at Williamsburg a year before. So. Well, it seems to me absolutely fighting must have been ferocious during this battle, especially in the uh, harsh conditions, weather conditions they were fighting in. Were there any stories of maybe like medals of honor awarded in this battle? Yes. Now, of course, the Confederates did not award any medals of, medals of honor, but there are stories of Confederate valor. There are stories of Union valor. On the Union side, there were seven medals of honor uh, awarded for actions that occurred on the field. Things, uh, everything from uh, saving their or saving their command's flag, uh, which was very common to get to get an award, uh, a medal of honor, is to save the flag or to capture a flag. Also, beating uh, their comrades under fire, things like that. But there were seven medals of honor awarded. Besides the soldiers, did civilians experience this battle or witness this battle? Yes, they did. Of course, now the citizens of Williamsburg were very, very Confederate by this time. They were, they were what we would consider today the die-hard Confederates. And the women were much more patriotic than the men. But they were all very nationalistic. Uh, and when the battle occurred, the battle's happening outside of town. They know that things are getting desperate because the war has come to their doorstep. For most of the citizens of Williamsburg, they're occupied in other things because the city was a complete, it was in complete chaos. There were 4,000 soldiers killed and wounded at the Battle of Williamsburg. And that's both sides. 
And with that, Williamsburg became a giant hospital. 4,000 soldiers killed and wounded was twice the size of the population of Williamsburg. Every, every public building in Williamsburg became a hospital. The churches, uh, the old schools, courthouse, they all became field hospitals during the day of the battle and the night after the battle. Uh, Custer, Lieutenant uh, George Armstrong Custer, found a West Point classmate of his and took him to this barn where the guy uh, was treated. And the guy, his name was Willis Lee, John Willis Lee, L-E-A. Custer gave Lee, I think, a pair of socks. He gave him some cash. He gave him uh, something else. Lee took a page out of his notebook and wrote a little note saying that this guy's been good to me, Custer, and if he's ever a prisoner, please take care of him. So Custer sees his West Point classmate in this this barn. The guy later, the Confederate uh, Willis Lee, goes to a house in town to recover where he falls in love with a 16-year-old girl here in town. They become engaged to be married. When the Seven Days campaign is over, this guy is still in Williamsburg as a prisoner of war, and Custer comes back through town, finds out that they're engaged, and he insists that the wedding occur then because he wants to be the best man. And so there is a wedding, August of 1862, here in town with Custer as the best man, and Captain John Willis Lee of the, the 5th North Carolina uh, is the groom. Uh, one of those Custer's, Custer has a lot of stories around this area. People, you know, think, oh, he's the little bighorn and that's it. But no, Custer's here a lot. And that's one of the Custer stories of the town here. Wow, that's a fantastic story. With that, during the day of the battle, there were Confederate troops marching back and forth throughout the town. Uh, you have refugees who were running back and forth throughout the town. There are wounded coming on in. There are prisoners coming on in. And it's, like I said, the, the, the town is in a big scene of chaos during the day. So most of the people are involved in something else. I mentioned every public building was a, was a hospital. When they ran out of room in the public buildings, they started to take the wounded into the houses of the town. The townspeople actually started to take the wounded into their homes. And when they ran out of room in their homes, they were literally laying the, the wounded out in the rain on the on the greens of the town, the market square and the palace green and people's lawns trying to cover them over with canvas because there just wasn't enough room for all the wounded. There also were not enough doctors to be at every building or hospital that was in town that day. So uh, they're caring for the wounded. Now, to answer your question, yes, some people did venture out to the battlefield. We have a couple reports. Uh, we had the Men's Hospital, the Eastern State Lunatic Asylum, which is on the uh, west side of the city, it had, a, had a large building uh, which had a tower. And you have some of the people uh, climbing up into that tower to observe the battle in the distance. We have that noted in a couple of accounts. We also have a drawing by a Union soldier of the mayor of the town and several city fathers out on the edge of the battlefield arguing about the battle. So we've got the physical evidence that yes, they're on the battlefield. Are you a Civil War reenactor? Living historian or just a fan of the American Civil War? Then in addition to listening to the ever astounding untold Civil War podcast, why not check out The Badge Maker? At www.civilwarcorebadges.com, the Badge Maker is the provider of all Civil War Corps badges, 
and also ID discs and a variety of other insignia and personal items you won't find anywhere else. That's the badge maker at www.civilwarcorebadges.com. A proud supporter of the Untold Civil War podcast. Link will be in the show notes. Wow, I would love to see that image. Uh, I can show it to you if you'd like. Oh, yeah. All right, let me uh, pull up the picture here and I will show it to you. Okay, that's the, that's the city, the mayor and the city leaders uh, on the edge of the battlefield with the town in the background. They're, they're arguing about the battle and you can see it's in the rain. They look like they must be just as confused about the battle as probably the generals were and the soldiers were. They were, um, you know, you have, a, you have a town which had been very Confederate as I'd mentioned before. And all of a sudden it looks like the Union Army is gonna be in their front yard, which it was right. <laughs> the next day. Uh, and this this could be life shattering when you're when your your side is not necessarily in control anymore. Yes. And you're behind enemy lines. So, you know, the city fathers, I'm sure, are very concerned about what's going to happen here. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about the town being very uh, Confederate at this point. What about the subsequent occupation? What happened there? How did how did relations between the two groups fare? The Union Army here in Virginia the army, the army itself takes about two weeks to pass through Williamsburg because it's one street. And as they're passing through, the townspeople let their feelings be known. We got accounts of people left and right who are writing about the Union Army coming through town and how they feel about it. We got the army itself writing about how they feel about the people who are looking at them and staring at them through the windows and, <laughs> and all of that. But as the army passes through, they leave behind a detachment of soldiers as a provost guard. The town is now occupied, military, military police or provost marshal. When the seven days campaign is over uh, and the army, McClellan's army comes back from Richmond, they come back through Williamsburg and the army stays here in Williamsburg. Williamsburg becomes the point that the Union Army decides to hold on to. And so between 18, late 1862 and into the war, Williamsburg is the United States. And if you go a couple of miles up the road, you're in the Confederacy. This is, this is the border between the two uh, in, in the Tidewater region. That makes Williamsburg pretty important for several reasons. It becomes a uh, conduit, if you will, for information from both sides. The Union soldiers can get Confederate papers. The Confederate side can get Union papers. Letters, information are smuggled in and out of the town. It's an interesting thing that um, the Confederate government, especially late in the war, can't get mail out of official, you know, official government correspondence, can't get mail out to, say, Europe. But what they do is uh, they can smuggle a letter into Williamsburg to someone into Williamsburg. Someone in Williamsburg occupied can go to the post office, put it in the mail, and the United States government will deliver the mail to wherever they want it to go. Basic story, though, is that the people of the town, 99%, not everyone, but 99% of the people in the town hate the Union Army. To them, the, the, the soldiers in blue are, are foreign soldiers. The United States flag is a foreign flag. They've got sons and brothers and, and husbands up the road a few miles in gray and the other army fighting against these guys. And they, they do everything, the, the uh, women of Williamsburg, and it's basically the women and children because anybody of military age is gone from the town. But the women of Williamsburg make life as miserable as possible for the United States Army. 
for the next three years. And the town is occupied, by the way, until September of 1865. So it's, it's a long occupation. Uh, in contrast, the United States Army goes out of its way, whether it's intended or not. Sometimes it is intended, sometimes it's unintentional, but the United States Army kind of goes out of its way to offend and upset the people here in town. Churches are all closed. The stores are all closed. They try to enforce a uh, loyalty oath several times. They're never quite successful because people refuse to receive the oath. But then they've got the problem that since they closed all the stores, these people can't get food. And unless they swear an oath of allegiance to the United States government, the government can't provide them with food. So, uh, you know, there are, there are lots of problems here in town. Uh, the women of the town uh, refuse to walk under the United States flag. There are singing contests between the women of the town and the troops. We, I, I see this in several accounts going up and down throughout the war that the Southern ladies will be singing Dixie and Bonnie Blue Flag and the Union soldiers will be shouting the battle cry of freedom and uh, the battle hymn of the Republic and stuff like that uh, and kind of out shouting each other. Uh, so again, it, it's not an easy relationship with the people here in town. And then there's the big question of slavery and the African-Americans here in town. Williamsburg is a microcosm of the Civil War. If you want to go to one place where you can get the entire story of the Civil War, Williamsburg is actually the place to do it because you've got uh, hesitancy at secession. You've got secession. You've got Confederate nationalism. You've got a battle. You've got field hospitals, military hospitals, you've got occupation, uh, you've got the Emancipation Proclamation problem, and then you've got throughout the rest of the war, even though the war has passed by the major part of the war, the town is attacked by Confederate guerrillas several times. There's still fighting going on in and around the streets for the next several years, all with an occupied civilian population right in the middle. And then when the war is over, you've got the uh, Reconstruction, which is very, very big here, uh, and it affects the area very big. But l let me show you something here. When the United States Army enters the town in, er in May of 1862, the uh, fugitive slave law is still in effect. So the Army is legally responsible under the law to return them to their master or mistress. And the Army doesn't want to do that because they're here to to end all this. The Army had come up with the year before with General Butler down at Fort Monroe, and you might, if you haven't done a podcast about this, you might wish to do a podcast about it. Down at Fort Monroe, General Butler had uh, proclaimed that slaves that had run away from their master since they were being used for war work, making uniforms, digging ditches, preparing meals, uh, and since the South considered them to be property, that this property was being used against the United States. And Butler took a point of international law saying that since this property was being used against the United States in time of war, the United States could confiscate the property and call it contraband. You've heard the term contraband of war. So um, when the army comes on in, although these people can't run away, they'd, they'd be returned if they just run away. If they say that they're being used for war work, the army can confiscate them and put them into a contraband camp uh, and protect them and give them work. The problem there, though, is that these women have to come forward 
to say that they're doing it. The army can't go on the other side of the fence and take the slaves away. That's, that's against United States law. Now that all changes on the 1st of January, 1863, seven months after Winsburg's occupied. That changes with the Emancipation Proclamation, which says all slaves in areas of rebellion are henceforth and forever free. The problem with that, though, in Williamsburg is that half of the city of Williamsburg is in York County and half the city of Williamsburg is in James City County. And when the proclamation coming out comes out saying that those in areas of occupation, or excuse me, those in areas of rebellion are free, York County, which is the north side of the city, is occupied by the U.S. Army and is not in rebellion. James City um. County, which is the south side of the town, is still in the Confederacy and is still in rebellion. So the dividing line for the Emancipation Proclamation is right down the middle of the street, which means slaves on this side, the north side of town, are still slaves, while slaves on this side of the town, the south side of the town, are free. And that's, I mean, that's something that people don't realize the, the actual implications of what's going on. They read about the Emancipation Proclamation in school, but they don't realize what's actually happening. And this is, again, why Williamsburg is so representative of the rest of the country. Now, to, to give you an end to this particular story, the government, the U.S. Uh, Provost Marshal's office, basically declared that as far as they were concerned, everybody in Williamsburg was free. So emancipation came to Williamsburg on the 1st of January, 1863. Do we know about any, like, Confederate guerrilla actions against occupation, stuff like that? Oh, yep, yep. As I mentioned, there were attacks against the town. Uh, there were three major attacks and a couple of minor attacks. After the Seven Days Campaign, again, this is the end of the United States right here. Here, you're in the United States. If you're to the west, uh, west you're in the Confederacy. Uh, anyway, Confederates were always out in the woods surrounding the town, always looking for opportunities. There were three major attacks, as I said, where Confederate cavalry, Confederate guerrillas, if you will, partisans, would race down the street. They'd shoot up the place like the Old West, and ride, ride through the town, say hello to friends and neighbors, pick up supplies, and then ride back out. There was actually uh, a gun battle prominent place in town, Bruton Parish Church, there was actually a gun battle between infantry and cavalry right here on the street in, um, I think, March 1863, where Confederate troops had got, who had come into town, had kind of got boxed in. Confederate uh, infantry, Union cavalry, tried to stop them from leaving the town, but infantry with their musketry overcame the cavalry on horseback. <laughs> And basically, uh, there's like one or two volleys of infantry fire, and the Confederate troops march over the dead horses and leave town. Wow. And that was one of the, the, uh, the later battles there. Yeah, it's not just the one battle. There are, there are things happening all the time. Uh, in early 1863, uh, one woman wrote something about that one day she woke up and there were Union, Union cavalry eating her fruit off of her trees, and then she woke up the next morning and there was South Carolina cavalry eating the fruit off of her trees. So it sort of becomes uh, a no man's land between the it lines. It is, it was, it was. Uh, and throughout the war, uh, people are constantly uh, leaving because it is such a, it's a troublesome place. It's not necessarily a nice area. The town is going to hell in a handbasket. People are leaving as refugees as they can from the town and going on up. Most, most of them are going up towards Richmond and the Richmond area to try and find work or to try and find relatives, things like that. 
by the end of the war, Williamsburg was pretty run down. Any building that had been left unoccupied had been torn down by the Union Army. Again, stores had been closed, churches had been closed. There was no so gay social life or anything like that for several years. When does Williamsburg sort of come back to life? Uh, 1880s, 1890s, uh, it is a small backwater little southern town, but it's trying to catch up with the times. The railroad comes through the town in the 1880s, 1881. Railroad hears the town. Uh, the main street is not paved until 1920. It's a mud street until 1920. And wow. then um, the other streets in town, the side streets and back streets, are still mud streets until Colonial Williamsburg, the museum moves in and the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation actually paves the streets for visitors. Other than that, it's just, it's a, a town with a lot of muddy streets and Model T cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do mention about the battlefield, how uh, now it, it doesn't look anything like it used to look. Are there yeah. any remnants of the battlefield at all? What can people see of the Civil War that's left? Today. Well, if you come here today as a, as a visitor, most of the battlefield is kind of like covered up with suburban area, parking lots, there's a bus depot, uh, things like that. You, you can come into this area and never know that anything happened here as far as the Civil War. There are some signs around. There is a group here, which you, you spoke to Drew Gruber. Uh, Drew Gruber is the Civil War Trails CEO, I guess, and he's also with the uh, Williamsburg Battlefield Association. The Williamsburg Battlefield Association has been trying uh, for several years to preserve and uh, remember the Battle of Williamsburg uh, and the Civil War here in the area. Uh, they currently have two areas that they have managed to, through the Battlefield Trust, the American Battlefield Trust, in cooperation with them, had managed to save two, two small patches of the battlefield. They are currently working at trying to save a much larger tract of the battlefield, which contains about one-third of where the fighting occurred. Other than that, though, you know, I, I could take you into town and take you into a, a parking lot and said, well, General Longstreet and his horse stood here, <laughs> you know, during the day. But you're not going you're not gonna know that. Um, yeah, uh, there are, there, of the redoubts, maybe about a third of them are uh, still there, the forts that were protecting Williamsburg. A third of them are still there, preserved by the city and by other, other people, the Daughters of the Confederacy. But yeah, un unless you read about it or, or have somebody show you where to go and what to look at, there, there's not a lot here, unfortunately. I, I always say that if Colonial Williamsburg had not been here, they would probably be a national park here of some sort, because this, again, was it was not an insignificant battle, although many people have never heard about it. Right. And uh, Ken Burns, uh, with his documentary series, uh, eight or nine, ten videos or whatever in his series, he never mentions the battlefield at Williamsburg, or he never mentions the Battle of Williamsburg once. <laughs> during the whole little series, which kind of upsets us because, you know, we think that we're fairly important here, at least in the early part of the war. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. Yeah. So I know you've written several books on the topic. Um, because there wasn't much to see on the battlefield today, how did you do the research for these books? How did you find the story? Oh, the stories, the stories were always there because the records were always there. I mean, since the war. 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of the records are missing. Uh, we, you know, I, I have a lot of stories about Williamsburg. In fact, I can tell you more stories about the Civil War in Williamsburg than I can tell you about George Washington in Williamsburg. Wow. But the stories were there, but nobody really connected them together. Or, you know, I would talk to one person and he would tell me this one story during the Battle of Williamsburg just happened. And another person would tell me this story. Um, a couple of people, post-war Confederates, have written accounts about parts of the battlefield. And you can go to the uh, official records and read that. But, you know, it, it took... And I wasn't the only one at the time who was interested. There were a couple other people who it all seemed to happen at the same time. People started to pull together the records uh, and try to make a, a, a cognitive story of everything and how it interacts. But to be honest with you, uh, even now, years later, after publishing the first book that I did about the Civil War in Williamsburg, I have more questions than I have answers. There are things that I would, I, I would give my right arm to, to know. Uh, about, you know, where this was, where that was, why they did this, why they did that. There are so many, so many stories of, of the town. Well, where can people get your book and, and read more about this fascinating <laughs> thing? The Hidden History is probably, to me, the, the, the best of the three to get if you want to learn about Williamsburg in depth. That's available Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. The first one, uh, which was Civil War Williamsburg, is still in print. Uh, it's in its second printing, I think, but it's a tour guide type thing. It's got pictures of the town before and after. It's the type of thing that if you come here to Williamsburg, you get that book and you can walk down the main street and compare buildings to what we're talking about, the map and all of that. The, the last one, Hidden History of Williamsburg, is one that gets into a lot more of the stories and in depth. The middle one, which is Yankees in the Streets, is out of print right now, or supposed to be out of print. You can still find copies of it, I'm, I'm sure. Perfect. And you said you can get those on Amazon? Amazon.com. I've even found them on eBay, if you want to try eBay and try to get a good deal. I always say, go to the library and read the library's copy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, uh, I definitely got to get my copy. Hopefully, I can send it over to you and get it signed. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, thank you so much. I think that pretty much wraps everything up. We pretty much, I think we covered everything here. This is such a great mm -hmm. example of untold civil war. You know? Oh, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's a hidden, as, it, as in the book, it's a hidden history. Absolutely. Uh, there are love stories. There are love stories here. There are stories of deceit. There are stories of spying and treachery. There are stories of murders. There are murders that occur here in town. There's the battlefield heroism, stories of, of patriotism for both sides, north and south. And then there's the African-American story here, which is a big part. That's, that's something that we're trying to push right now, too, is that the African-American story here is so big. It's more than just the Emancipation Proclamation. And, and it's like, you know, we, we look back on it. We look back on it, and we know the outcome of how everything happens. But back then in 1862, here at Williamsburg, the United States Army discovers that with the African-Americans, we got an awful lot of spies everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all you got to do is, is ask, ask the guy by the side of the road, you know, where are the rebels? Where are the forts? Yep. <laughs> and yep. they'll tell you. And they, it's amazing, but they had never thought of this before. 
Yeah. But here at Williamsburg, um, and the, the specific instance here at Williamsburg is that a, an African-American a, a slave comes into the headquarters and says, you know, you, you guys are fighting this big battle here, but if you take the road around here to the right, you can get around behind them and there's nobody blocking the road. <laughs> and for uh, once, for once they listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you mentioned too that we have uh, use of the machine gun on the Battle of Williamsburg here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, New York unit was using the um, coffee mill gun, if you're familiar with the coffee mill gun. Mm -hmm. They had two of them on the field here. This is uh, one of the first use of landmines. They, they had used them, uh, Confederates used them around Yorktown, and they used them all around Williamsburg trying to stop the Union troops, uh, so landmines, or subterranean torpedoes, they call them. Again, there are just so many things here that people just don't realize that contribute and, and again, become... To tie up my theme, you know, the whole war is here in a microcosm. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully when I get this uh, podcast edited and out, people will know a little bit more about the Battle of Williamsburg. And when everything opens up, they'll be able to go visit. We need, we need visitors. <laughs> For sure. And I'm definitely going to be one of those visitors um, once I get some time well, off. So thank you so when, much. When things get better, we're going to have more people coming, I hope. I, I hope so too, fingers crossed. And like I said, I'll definitely be there and uh, I can't wait to actually tour the actual site. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, all right? Appreciate it, thank you. Thank you for listening to that episode while you put together that new Ikea bookshelf, did the laundry, acting as courier for General Meade, manning the guns of the CSS Virginia, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Craig Duncan for the music. Thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Your efforts keep this project going. And please, check us out on YouTube. I've got a special video coming out in regards to St. Patrick's Day. So I hope you tune in next time for our next episode. Thank you. <laughs>